Excellent. Well, let's get straight into the seminar then. Uh, well, I'd like to thank Walter Labber for joining us today. He's a senior lecturer at, uh, in, in international relations for the Department of War Studies at King's College London and an associate fellow in the Indo-Pacific program at RUSI. His research interests include South Asian security, US foreign policy, and irregular warfare. His scholarly work was published in a number of, has been published in a number of academic journals, including well, it's all the top ones, really, International Security, Journal of Strategic Studies, Asian Survey, among others. And his first book, The Forgotten Front, Patient-Client Relations in Counterinsurgency, was published in 2017 by King's University Press. That examines the often difficult relations between the US and local governments in supporting counterinsurgencies. He is currently writing a book on Indian defense policy. He's given evidence to parliamentary committees and commented on international affairs for The Economist, The Washington Post, The Financial Times, and the BBC. And his opinion pieces have appeared in a number of newspapers, including New York Times and Washington Journal. He's held fellowships at the University of Virginia and the University of Pennsylvania, and previously taught courses on insurgency, counterterrorism, and Cold War history at the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge. He received a BA from the University of Southern California, an MPA from Princeton University, and a PhD from here in the University of Oxford. Walter, thank you so much for joining us today, and we're very much looking forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Just quite a formal, uh, full introduction. Um, appreciate it. Um, so I was I was asked to speak um, about it on a topic related to India, foreign policy or defense policy. I want to talk to you about a project that I currently have underway um, with one of my PhD students, uh, Sunita Tati, looking at some issues surrounding um, Indian foreign policy. Um, but as was mentioned, I am also working on finishing a book on, on Indian defense policy, so happy to take the conversation in that direction if we want to talk about kind of strategic issues and other things like that um, during the Q&A. But this, um, this paper we have right now uh, essentially tries to get at a, a question about what arising India's relationship with the present international system is likely to be, right? Is India um, more likely to be a state that kind of supports and buttresses sort of current international arrangements um, and the order as it exists now, or will it be seen to kind of put its energies more towards challenging an international order that, that is seen as constructed by, say, the West in general and the United States in particular. And I think when we set out on this project, um, some of this stuff was, I think, a, a little bit um, obscure, perhaps, to, to, to lay audiences. I think the Ukraine war has brought questions around India into stark relief. Um, at least judging by the fact that I now get WhatsApps from my brother-in-law, who's a farmer in central Kansas, asking me, What's going on with India? Whose side is India on? What, what, what's going on with India and Russia? So I, I use that as sort of one metric to say that I think this has kind of percolated a little more into, into popular consciousness. But it's certainly the case that this you know, fundamental assumption of, of India largely as a status quo power, um, I think informs some of the, the decision making by governments that are seeking to deepen their strategic partnerships with New Delhi most notably the United States and the UK, both of which who've made India a principal position uh, in their respective um, Indo-Pacific strategies. You know, yet at the same time, there are voices, um, skeptical voices, who point out that whether it's due to, you know, underdevelopment, anti-colonial ideologies, or simply different national interests, that, you know, India frequently opposes the agenda of Western states and international institutions, 
um, has entered into and joined new multilateral groupings that in some respects seek to kind of alter or supplant the role of the existing Bretton Woods institutions. I mean, it has ties with some so-called, you know, rogue states that seem to flaunt international norms. And so what we're trying to do to kind of shed some possible light on, on this question is um, analyze an original data set that we've created of the overseas travel of the Indian Prime Minister, the Indian President, and the Indian External Affairs Minister from 19, uh, 1992 to 2019. And so we think that examination of more than a quarter century of India's high-level personal diplomacy that goes over the course of six different governments can allow us to, to kind of pose some questions and draw some conclusions about um, of the factors that drive and shape aspects of India's foreign policy. And so the, the analysis in this paper then kind of splits into two parts. Um, the first is, is trying to unpack and discover the drivers of, of this high-level VIP diplomacy, right? There are some people who suggest that these kinds of things are driven by routine and bureaucratic process, um, which of course then it would be very difficult to really make reasonable inferences from um, what's going on there if, if it's not necessarily purposeful or in intent. Um, there are some scholars and observers who argue that over the last three decades, Indian foreign policy has really lacked coherence, has lacked a sort of uh, a structured focus. Um, you know, in contrast to that, we do actually find that strategic interest explanations, um, you know, shape patterns of foreign travel. There are some domestic politics elements that we see as important as well. In contrast, um, principles and bureaucratic routine actually have very little explanatory power. So with it kind of solidified in our minds, at least, that, that this is a purposeful undertaking that we can sort of draw some inferences from there, um, we then look at um, what some of these patterns of, of travel and engagement might mean for, for India's uh, engagement with the international order. And we do find that, that India based on the categories we're looking at, can't be definitively placed into a status quo or a challenger mold. So there are behaviors in certain areas that comport with the former, whereas behaviors in others that would seem to be aligned with the latter. And you know, I think that this kind of uh, outcome is, is, can be understood as representing the behavior of a state that um, you know, wants to see the emergence of a true multipolar international system as the best defender of its national interests. So at the end of the day, from a policy standpoint, I think we would say that those who advocate uh, making a strategic bet on India's future are not necessarily wrong, but I do think that they've, um, they've maybe overestimated the degree of strategic convergence that will occur uh, in the future. And so some of the angst that we've seen exhibited in London and Washington and elsewhere over, say, India's position on Ukraine is likely to be replicated on other topics and in other areas in the future. Okay, so how do we get to that uh, conclusion? I want to just first take a quick second and just run you through a bit of this debate about, you know, where, where does India's sort of uh, uh, future lie. I think, you know, as, as Asia's other rising power, many observers have looked at India's sort of increasing uh, the growth of their power and influence the international system and generally seen it to be a good thing. Um, the United States in particular has made a national policy going all the way back to the Bush administration of trying to accelerate India's rise on the world stage and increasingly integrate it into um, the international order. 
So you have this quote here by Ashley Tellis, who's sort of the key, a key architect of the U.S.-India rapprochement in the early 2000s. This is from some of his uh, congressional testimony around the time of the U.S.-India nuclear deal, when it essentially frames and understands India as being a um, status quo power, right? There's an acknowledgement that there will be occasional disagreements, but by and large, it's seen that India's interests and those of the United States will be on a road to significant convergence. And there are other scholars who sort of um, express this, this view as well. And so from this perspective, New Delhi's stakes in the international system are expected to you know, only grow, and with it, the incentives to collaborate with um, the world's major democratic powers. That being said, there are those who question the degree to which India's foreign policy preferences really do align so closely with those in Washington, or whether Indian leaders are really that satisfied with the existing norms and rules that govern the international system. So, of course, at the most extreme, you do have Pakistani analysts who you know, brand India as a revisionist state that will seek to upend the current international order, and as soon as they grow powerful enough to kind of push the United States out of the way, and although that, that he seemed quite extreme, we've got at least one uh, former U.S. ambassador and South Asia specialist who sort of more or less um, suggested something just along those lines in the pages of Foreign Affairs not too long ago. Um, we've got scholars of Indian foreign policy who identify a distrust of the international system as a, a reoccurring trend in the country's foreign policy. And in international negotiations ranging from climate change to trade, you know, the Indian position is often depicted as being kind of like a spoiler or an obstacle to securing some kind of deal. And then rather than having increasing alignment with the primary proponents of the status quo of the United States, it's argued by some that actually India's foreign policy preferences continue to manifest very significant divergences in both objectives and concerns from those of the U.S. So, when it comes to, say, voting on UN resolutions that have been identified as important by the United States government, over the past two decades, India has only concurred with the United States on about 20% of UN votes. So by contrast, just to give you some perspective, long-term uh, treaty allies in Asia, like Australia and Japan, the figure there is more like 80%, right? So among states that are kind of considered to be strategic partners of the US, only Egypt and Pakistan have a lower rate of convergence with the United States than India does. Then, of course, we, we have things like endorsement of uh, Russia's uh, uh, intervention into Syria, the lack of condemnation over the annexation of Ukraine, subsequent invasion of or, or Crimea, and then subsequent invasion of, of Ukraine, all of which sort of raises questions about as my brother-in-law put it, whose side is India on? Though I think this could be seen um, in, in the context of this very important and long-standing strategic partnership that has existed between Moscow and New Delhi. However, when seen alongside engagement with, say, the theocratic regime in Iran, the Kim dynasty in North Korea, the military dictatorship in Burma, and at various points in times, the fetting of sort of notorious African dictators like Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe or Omar al-Bashir of Sudan, you know, taken together, you could see how some would make a case that this is not behavior that would necessarily mark one out as being a, a pillar of the liberal international order. And then there are government-affiliated, you know, researchers in India who suggest that actually the country's preferred international order is really poorly aligned with that of the present US-led system and actually much closer to China's ideal vision of international politics. And so 
Some go so far as to say advocate that, you know, instead of cooperating with established powers, India should be looking to Beijing as potentially a, a natural partner. And again, in, in areas ranging from climate change to trade negotiations, the global financial crisis, energy security, often see India kind of navigating its position or coordinating its position with China in opposition to, you know, the so-called West. So the point of all of this is simply to kind of illustrate the, uh, the range of uh, disagreements over the degree to which Indian foreign policy preferences actually align with the current U.S.-led international order. And of course, we have to recognize it is not always easy to identify another state's intentions, um, both because they may have incentives to misrepresent them, and particularly in the case of, of rising powers, we know that their aims and ambitions can change as their power increases. Moreover, like all major countries, India faces a range of situations that are thrust upon it. Um, and it may demand them to deal with tricky situations in which there's no ideal solution. So, for example, it may not be the ideal preference of Indian leaders to have dealings with a military junta in Burma. They may not want that form of government to exist in that country. But when we're talking about a state that's on India's border and has a government that's increasingly aligned with China, Interaction and engagement may be the lesser of two evils. And of course, it, it can be even more complicated to, to divine intention in the case of a state like India, where, as I've already mentioned, there's an open debate among some observers or scholars as to whether the country has pursued a coherent foreign policy in the post-Cold War world, or whether it's simply, in the words of, of Harsh Pant, drifts from international event to international event without any sense of direction. So what we're trying to do in this study, then, is, is get to grips with India's diplomatic uh, priorities by looking at official visits made by three figures at the top of the government. So you have um, the president, who's the sort of symbolic head of state, fulfills in some respects the kind of the role that the queen plays in the, the British system, the prime minister, who is, of course, the head of government and the real center of power, and then the external affairs minister, who is the chief foreign policy agent. So why, you might be wondering, do we think this matters? Why do we think that where these people go in the world can tell us something about India's interests and priorities? Um, and the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that these senior figures have very scarce amounts of time. And investing it in traveling to a particular location to have face-to-face -face interactions with their counterparts represents, we argue, a costly signal of their intention and priorities. Right? High-level diplomacy is extremely difficult to delegate. There are very few other figures who can really have the gravitas to, to fill the gap when one of these apex leaders is missing. And we've seen this in the Indian, in the Indian context. So in 2016, Prime Minister Modi skips the, the summit of the non-aligned movement and sends the country's vice president in his stead. Well, guess what? That made news. That became the story, the fact that this much lesser figure was being, um, was being sent. Um, and, you know, it's not just a question of deciding where you're going to go internationally. It's when you're going to go. And the fact of the matter is, particularly for the prime minister, there are important domestic competing um, um, interests and issues. Right? Being out of the country is costly. And we've seen a host of Indian prime ministers, um, not just Modi, going all the way back to, to I.K. Gujarat, who, who've been branded non-resident prime ministers, a play on non-resident Indians, um, for their frequent overseas travel, right? So there is a domestic cost to doing this um, as well. And then again, in the case of um, 
of India, we, we think it goes one step further in sort of seeing VIP time abroad as a scarce resource because the Indian Ministry of External Affairs is very limited in its capacity. For those of you who are not quite familiar, um, the MEA essentially has the same number of diplomats in the world as does very tiny countries like New Zealand and Singapore and are routinely described as being sort of overworked and overwhelmed, just maintaining a very basic uh, program of international engagement. So we argue then that the choices these VIPs make, the precedents the, they give to certain states rather than others, can reveal some real information about what is important. And this contrasts with sort of public statements and you know, diplomatic messaging, which is often seen as lacking real um, real credibility because this kind of talk is cheap, right? So India has scores and scores of strategic partners around the world with countries ranging all the way from the United States on the one hand down to tiny Rwanda on the other. So being a strategic partner of India is not really uh, uh, tell you all that much necessarily about the relationship. Um, just really quick key caveat I want to mention, of course, we think the volume of travel can tell us something about which countries are important to India, but that should not be construed as being a proxy for the, the health of the relationship, right? So you can imagine a scenario in which close partners, trusted partners are visited frequently. It might also be the case that there's a particularly contentious relationship that needs to be managed actively, and that needs like a, high, a lot of high-level face-to-face um, face-to-face -face attention. So we're not saying that lots of visits equal good relations, no visits equal bad relations. We're just saying that this is a marker of importance. Okay, so I've been talking at you for quite a while about this. I want to shift to kind of showing you, um, showing you our data. So as I, managed, as I mentioned, we put together this original data set on overseas travel. We're looking, our interest is post-Cold War. We started in 92. I'll just kind of quickly explain that. Certainly, if you're sitting in Europe, you might think 1989 is a, is a more logical starting point. But for India and much of Asia, this is where the kind of the shocks from the end of the Cold War came, um, came into being. So 1991, Soviet Union collapses. India loses its kind of main patron in international affairs, its source of subsidized oil, major trading partner. And this also coincides with a severe economic crisis within India that leads the prime minister of the day, Prime Minister Rao, to undertake a series of, or to begin a process of economic liberalization that sort of comparatively opens India up to the world. So we have 92 then as kind of the starting point when, when the, the effects of these, these things would start to shape Indian foreign policy. And we're looking strictly at bilateral travel, right? So because we're, let me hop that back for a second. Because we're interested in, in government to government interactions and what going to a certain place tells us about what's important. You know, if a prime minister flies off to a G20 summit or a non-aligned movement, well, they don't control necessarily where that country or where that thing takes place. So if there's a separate bilateral meeting that happens before or after with that particular government, it's in our data set, but multilateral stuff is not captured. And then, of course, travel you know, for personal reasons is also not part of this. So as you can see, this gives us 213 trips by the prime minister, 120 by the president, and 320 by the external affairs minister. Um, OK, so where do they go in the world? So this shows you the, the prime minister and the external affairs minister. I'll show you the president um, in a minute. And the numbers on here, I, I pulled out the kind of five, in some cases it's six because they're Thai's <laughs> most visited um, countries in the world. So what we see is the prime minister, um, it's the immediate, India's immediate neighborhood. And then interestingly, Europe is the most visited uh, destination with Eurasia and Southeast Asia also registering importance. Just jump ahead for a second and show you the, 
Oh, sorry, that is the EAM. Yeah, and the external affairs minister kind of does the same thing as well. Um, Europe was the leading region for the president's official travel. Um, Southeast Asia also gets some degree of importance. Um, however, the head of state you know, visited parts of Africa and the Americas with much greater frequency than the other two VIPs. And across all three, um, Oceania was, was the region that was least visited. And so we do see a high degree, you can just see it even visually on the maps, although the, the top five are not exactly the same. There's a high degree of overlap between where the prime minister goes and where the external uh, uh, affairs minister goes, much less convergence with the president. And now it's not strictly germane to kind of what we're doing in the study, but I think even just these descriptive statistics reveal some interesting things about Indian foreign policy. Um, as I mentioned, you know, before the Ukraine war, uh, uh, or sorry, as I mentioned before, the Ukraine war has surfaced, I think, in, for a lot of people's minds, the importance of the Indian relationship with Russia. So when I showed this data to some scholars of Indian foreign policy previously, at least one was really quite shocked to see how much engagement there was with Russia. The assumption had been, as he put it, that it was a legacy issue, that it was like left over, that this wasn't such an active relationship and had underestimated the importance. I think Southeast Asia is also kind of quite interesting. This is a region that has been at least rhetorically privileged in a lot of India's foreign policy. Going all the way back to 1991, there was a first a look east policy and then later an act east policy that really wanted to connect India to that very economically vital region. More recently, it's been identified as being kind of the key point in which India would make its presence felt in the Indo-Pacific as it kind of grows into great power status. And the fact that, that this region you know, holds a subordinate position to, to Europe, at least as far as VIP travel goes, was, was really surprising to, to my uh, co-author and I. And I think it you know, might confirm some of those who have somewhat skeptical views about the degree of engagement. So if I'm reading right, external affairs minister never visited China? In that time frame? No, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So this is, I think he made about eight visits to okay. China. So I, the, one, the ones that are numbered, so basically the pattern is the darker is the more visited, the lighter, the white ones are no visits. And then I called out with specific numbers simply the top five or top six. So thanks for asking that, that question. No, absolutely. But you can see China was definitely not a top five, top six destination um, for them. Um, okay, so those maps are just aggregate summaries. Of course, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of chat about, um, particularly with Prime Minister Modi hitting the roads so often. How frequently does this travel kind of happen? So this is sort of annual markers. The thick line is sort of all travel. The fragmented line is is bilateral visits. Um, you can see. Again, not surprisingly, the external affairs minister undertakes the most travel. Then we have the prime minister, and then we have the president. And you can see that sort of from the Rao government all the way up through to the end of the second Singh ministry and the UPA2 government, you have a pretty steady, sorry, pretty steady um, pattern of travel, kind of falls within a very predictable um, realm, and then a huge shoot up under Modi. Um, and then again, this happens again with, uh, to a lesser extent towards the end of Modi's first term with, with the president of India, um, but not necessarily the case with the external affairs minister. You see peaks and troughs at various points in time under various governments. There have been reasons to be very active or not to be um, so much. And then this is just a kind of a quick, what did, what did each individual government prime minister get up to, where they took the first trips, most countries visited, and again, this kind of really highlights um, how much travel Modi did. That basically his you know, total number of trips about seventy percent higher than his predecessor did in 
in two full terms. But as I said before, I think Modi is, seems to be kind of a personal outlier. It's not necessarily reflected amongst other ministers of his government. Okay, so what then, first question, what is potentially driving this travel, right? How should we understand the factors that are, that are shaping the way in which Indian apex leaders decide to spend their time? And so I think this requires us to sort of ask and answer some fundamental questions about the, the sources of a country's diplomatic priorities, right? To what extent are national interests static and therefore diplomatic priorities unchanging, irrespective of, of which government is in power in the day? So, you know, a, a realist or a strategic interest model would posit that this diplomatic engagement should be fairly standard over time. Um, you know, foreign policy priorities of the country's top leaders will reflect the military, economic, or political importance of the partner state. And, of course, there's a number of scholars who've argued that, you know, since the end of the Cold War, that India's foreign policy has adopted a very pragmatic or realist tenor. So to, to sort of look at that, we look at... Um, countries that are major arms suppliers to India, major export markets, um, developed advanced economies, energy producers, India's engagement with major powers. And then if, if you know, strategic interests really explain things, we would expect that democracy and human rights is not going to really play much of a role in shaping where people go. Um, alternatively, we have what Rahul Sagar has termed the, the principled action approach, which offers an alternative understanding of the way that India seeks to exercise its power in the international system, and that's kind of as the leader of coalitions that try to advance the, the interests of the developing world. So this would suggest that, that Indian VIPs would, would focus their attention and personal diplomacy on the global south and its development agenda. And so we assess this by looking at um, you know, interactions with states that are members of the G77 or those that have kind of close ties with, uh, or close foreign policy alignment with India, which is itself seen to be um, you know, the voice of the developing world in the UN, we would not necessarily expect um, major powers, and particularly major military powers, if this holds to, to receive that much attention. Of course, we should also ask, how much agency do individual leaders have, right? How able are they to shape the country's foreign policy priorities? Um, and what other domestic factors play a role in shaping India's foreign policy? Um, public opinion is not traditionally seen as exerting a, a major influence over uh, India's foreign policy direction. But, you know, from a scholarly standpoint, we're only beginning to get to grips with the role and influence of, say, regional par political parties and coalitions um, and, and the role that sort of other entities within the state play in, in shaping the, the nation's approach to the world. So to assess the importance of domestic politics, uh, we consider the existence of major variations across, across different governments, the effects of travel on sort of impending elections, the health of the economy. We also look at um, the state of violence in Kashmir and the presence of overseas Indian workers in, in a particular country as a driver. And then finally, I think it's important to ask um, whether it's even correct to see high-level personal diplomacy uh, as an instrumental intentional act, or is it as Harshpant uh, uh, skeptically contends that diplomatic visits are the product of, of routine and bureaucratic necessity, that they don't happen because there's a real purpose to them. And it's certainly the case that um, uh, Leibovic and Saunders had a study of the United States that kind of did something slightly similar, um, and they found that the U.S. Secretary of State actually has a very predictable travel pattern, right? When there's a crisis in the world, when there's an issue, the Secretary of State gets on the plane and goes to London and goes to Paris and goes to Berlin and makes kind of the diplomatic circuit. 
Um, and I think it's, it's this last model that the reason we're taking the time to go through this is this is the one we're concerned by, right? Because if it's about routine, if it's about sort of path-dependent issues, then it becomes really hard to divine uh, uh, or extrapolate everything, anything from this travel, right? It might have been the case, if routine holds, that at one point in time, strategic interests or bureaucratic uh, or uh, domestic politics shaped events, but now this has just become sort of the way things go, and it doesn't necessarily reflect um, conventional challenges. So with the occurrence or not of a bilateral visit to a given country in a given year as our dependent variable, we employ a series of logistical regressions to kind of evaluate these, these different explanations. I'm not going to subject you to, to any of the numbers, but just kind of talk you through the results that we're, we're getting so far. And we do find that the strategic interests kind of model and approach gets a fairly high degree of support, major export markets for India, um, and a status as a major uh, political power in the international system. So this includes established powers, which we, we, we code as G7 members, and uh, major rising powers, so members of the G20 attract visits. Um, so holding all else constant, the prime minister is nine times as likely to visit a G7 member state as a similarly positioned state that's not in the G7, and it's about three times as likely um, when it comes to, to these rising powers. Uh, the more economically developed a country is, the more the prime minister is likely to visit. Um, on contrast, being a, a major military power, being a major arms supplier to India does not actually move the needle um, very much, nor do major energy suppliers on their own um, attract a lot of high-level attention, which is a kind of surprising finding, given that there's a robust literature on Indian foreign policy, which emphasizes energy diplomacy as a really in important aspect of um, the country's foreign policy, and in line with what we'd expect from a, a, a realist sort of strategic interest approach, um, the human rights situation or the democratic status of a particular country doesn't affect the degree to which its um, Indian VIPs visit. Our second uh, uh, framework, this principal action model, we get very little support. So the Global South, countries of the Global South are not privileged um, in bilateral visits. And actually we find that the, the foreign minister is actually less likely to visit a country if it's a member of the G77. And in fact, in contrast to the expectations of this principal action framework, again, as I mentioned, it's the established powers who get much of the, the high level foreign policy attention. And Interestingly, countries sharing foreign policy preferences with India, so countries that, that vote alike with India at the UN, um, also that does not appear to be a, a big factor. So India is not trying to cultivate like-minded states with its overseas um, visits. The main hypothesis of the domestic politics model that we would sort of see radical changes from government to government um, is really not borne out. As I mentioned, the Modi, Prime Minister Modi himself appears to be a very personally active traveler, but that's not true of the rest of his government per se, nor is it true across the other governments in our sample. On that being said, we do see a couple of, oops, a couple of different factors. Um, the timing of elections certainly affects when and where, uh, when people go. Um, there's a, a, a slight effect of the, the uh, state of the economy, so if the unemployment uh, rate is high, um, these apex leaders seem to be likely, more likely to get out on the road and do some international travel. Um, violence in Kashmir, or the lack of it, does not affect the rate at which um, these folks go abroad. And only the president, sort of the symbolic head of state, is um, more inclined to visit countries that have high populations of overseas Indian workers. Um, and then finally, the idea that, that, that this is just simply routine or bureaucratic process um, is rejected. 
The president's travel is not influenced by where they've gone in the past. And actually, we see an active effort to diversify. So the prime minister and the external affairs minister are actually much less likely to visit a country that they've, they've recently visited. We also don't see the external affairs minister as sort of laying the groundwork for a subsequent visit by either the president or the prime minister. Again, in contrast, in, in Leibovitz and Sanders' study, of the United States, there was a definitive pattern whereby the Secretary of State visited a country and very soon after the American president followed. So these guys are all pretty um, independent. So now again, this is just simply an, uh, an interim step in our analysis to try to get to um, what this says about India's orientation to the international system. But I just want to flag, I think there are a couple of interesting potential implications for the study of Indian foreign policy. Um, I think the fact that we found clear elements that can explain high-level uh, diplomatic engagement from 1992 back to 2019, um, challenge those who suggest that sort of India lacks a coherent foreign policy over the last three decades and just drifts from crisis to crisis, and you know, would, would comparatively bolster the arguments that actually Indian foreign policy has been based on a broad national consensus and that there are sort of regular patterns across various governments. Um, I think the strategic interest model kind of being, being most upheld, again, would also probably bolster those who, um, who suggest that, that Indian foreign policy since the end of the Cold War has had a pragmatic or a realist tenor. Of course, caveating that with, with the fact that you know, we're not looking at a prior period, so we're not doing before and after, but certainly in this after period, we can identify those realist elements. That being said, we should not lose sight of the fact that you know, high-level personal diplomacy is only one aspect of foreign policy. Right? It might be the fact that by its nature, this type of interaction is much more kind of strategic and realist. So it could easily be the case that India pursues its, um, you know, its principled action approach via multilateral diplomacy or engagement in international institutions. So we're not saying that, that those who advocate this as being an important part of Indian foreign policy are, are discredited, simply that at least when it comes to the face-to-face -face stuff, the, the realist strategic stuff holds out. Okay, so let's now get to get to the real kind of questions that, that we want to ask, which is, since we have confidence that India's VIP travel is coherent, is purposeful, is instrumental, what might it tell us um, about India's orientation towards the international system? And so building on some prior work by um, Krasner and Saunders' study of China, we've done this by looking at four factors, and I'm going to kind of just talk you through the logic of each of them in turn. So the first is the specific cultivation of relations with rising powers, rising non-core powers. So again, just to remind you, what we're talking about here are members of the G20 who aren't members of the G7. So for a country that is has a, a challenger orientation or is dissatisfied with the present international system, this is kind of the... The, the, the crowd of potential allies. This is potentially other states that are dissatisfied with the way uh, things are ordered. And if you were looking to build coalitions to affect change, these might be the leading states that you would look to partner with. So we posit that a state which is kind of fundamentally status quo in orientation would either not really show any great preference for these states over others or perhaps avoid them. Um, however, if we find that there's a specific effort to cultivate relations with those kinds of states, it's hard to see that as being compatible with a, a status quo orientation, whereas it would appear to be much more compatible with, 
with a challenger orientation. And what we find is, I've, I've already sort of noted, all three VIPs, the president, the prime minister, and the foreign minister, are all significantly more likely to visit these rising power states um, than, than other countries. And again, just to give you some context, Krasner and Saunders, when they looked at um, overseas travel by Chinese leaders, so it was Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, so the, the, the set of leaders before uh, Xi Jinping came to power, they found no evidence of a Chinese orientation towards um, rising powers. Now, I should say that there's a slight caveat. Um, the prime minister is yet more likely to visit an established power than a rising power. But on balance, we kind of coded this as behavior that is sort of more inclined or leaning towards more of a challenger status than not. Um, the second factor that we then looked at was, was relations with so-called um, rogue states, which we operationalize as those subject to uh, UN multilateral sanctions. Um, as I noted earlier, India has been criticized by a number of observers for, for supposedly having these kinds of, of dalliances. Um, and so, again, in terms of the logic, I think, you know, seeking out relations with these states or even not taking their status into account would be hard to explain as being kind of in line with, with the status quo, um, whereas, you know, avoiding them would, would probably show a more consistent pattern. And what's really interesting here, given how much opprobrium that India seems to get for supposedly interacting with, with rogue states, we find that the prime minister is, is a lot less likely to, to visit a country that, that is, is under UN uh, multilateral sanctions. And actually, there's not a single case where the Indian president has ever visited such a state. So actually, that kind of behavior really points more towards kind of a, a status quo orientation. The external affairs minister does not necessarily take this into account, which is a, a bit of a point in, in the, the challenger camp. But when you dig into the data, you find that every single instance where this occurred, the country in question is Iran. And so there is literature, including by my, my co-author uh, Sumita, who, which suggests that, that Iran needs to be seen as a special case in Indian foreign policy. So that engagement with Iran is, is due to its geographic location, is due to past history, not to be seen as sort of some coherent effort to sort of challenge and undermine um, international norms. Now that being said, there is also another finding we have that the more authoritarian a state is, the more likely the external affairs minister um, is to visit. Again, this could be the case that the EAM is basically uh, uh, the guy who has to get his hands dirty, that, that his or her job is to go to the countries that are sort of less ideal while the president and the prime minister are allowed to sort of stand back. That's one possible explanation. So anyway, we've, we've coded this as, because of the, the, the behavior of the prime minister and the president, we've coded this as sort of a, a leaning status quo, but with some important caveats um, behind it. So just two more to go. We, we then look at states that are both um, friendly and hostile to um, the United States. On the one hand, is sort of the leading proponent of the status quo. And then Russia and China, on the other hand, which are frequently kind of identified as the, as the leading revisionists in the system. Um, so seeking out states that are kind of hostile to these powers, we would think would be sort of rather inconsistent with the status quo orientation, whereas doing the same that are uh, with countries that are in a hostile relationship with Russia and China would raise questions about whether a state was really a challenger. We, we code this kind of conflictual relationship as being subject to unilateral sanctions by these kinds of states. What we find is quite interesting is that although it, successive Indian governments have absolutely deplored the use of unilateral sanctions, um, 
the prime minister doesn't, you know, is, is significantly less likely to go to countries that, that are under U.S. Um, sanctions. Um, external affairs minister and the president, you know, doesn't really um, make a difference. Um, having a hostile relationship with Russia does not, um, does not change things um, at all. Um, but the foreign minister is more likely to go visit a country that has a difficult relationship with China. So on balance, we have this kind of pointing more towards a status quo orientation. And then the final kind of factor we look at is the relationship with states that are friendly to these guys. And again, seeking out, trying to build partnerships with partners of the US, more consistent with a status quo, trying to do this with countries like uh, friendly to Russia and China, more inconsistent with the status quo. Um, and what we find is this one is, is particularly mixed. So the, the more a country's foreign policy preferences align with those of the US, the more likely the Indian foreign minister is to, to go there. So there's a preference for countries that, that are close to the US. But US treaty allies, US military clients don't get any more uh, uh, attention or, or, or lack of attention. Um, military allies of Russia get presidential attention. Those states whose foreign policies differ from Russia get less attention from the president. And both the external affairs minister and the president are, are more likely to visit Russian military clients. So the more military gear that gets sold to a particular country, the more likely those, those countries are to get visited by those people. Um, having close foreign policy preferences with China, being an arms client of China, nothing done there. So on balance, again, this, this really is the most contradictory and points in, in, in differing directions. So there's some evidence of, of, of an inclination towards the United States. There's much more evidence of an inclination towards Russia. But whether you, you know, view this as, as, as a significant challenge or behavior, I think is really mitigated by the fact that there's not a similar pattern of behavior vis-a-vis -vis China. So what do we, let me just offer some kind of quick thoughts. And this is the part of the paper where we're still definitely working is what the implications of, of all this are. And I think, as I said at the outset, I think based on these four factors, we would not place India definitively in either a, a status quo or a challenger camp. There are elements of behavior and foreign policy orientation that could be explained or sought to be aligning with either. I think on balance, it's our thinking now that there are slightly more elements that point towards a status quo rather than a challenger um, preference, but it's hardly unambiguous. Um, and so I think this in turn suggests to us that, you know, on balance, those who've advocated, uh, or India's partners in the West who've sort of advocated making a strategic bet, um, have probably made a, a, a generally correct assessment of a country's priorities. At the same time, however, I think they've, they've really underestimated the potential range of divergences. And these are not things that should be seen as being kind of temporary or passing phenomenon. Um, in, in particular, the, the embrace of, of non-core rising powers really reflects the fact that Indian leaders have consistently sought uh, uh, the emergence of a multipolar international order with a broader distribution of power. And I think that fact has not always been appreciated or fully understood um, by Western analysts. And you know, there are times when I feel like I'm talking to people in, whether it's in London or DC or elsewhere, and they're like, you know, they hear Indian counterparts saying multipolar order and be like, yeah, we don't want China in charge either. Great, we're all on the same page when they really are sort of talking past each other. And I think there are real differences in the way that, say, India on the one hand and the United States on the other conceives of how power 
should be distributed across the international order. So if we look really narrowly in the context of a bilateral kind of US-China rivalry, as the, the evidence I've shown, I think it, it, it sh we can see markers of alignment, not alliance, but markers of alignment towards the US and really very little towards China. Um, but that is far from the whole story. And I think this then helps surface um, the role of, of an importance of Russia to India and the role that sort of Russia um, plays in this kind of imagined multipolar order. Um, a lot is made of the arms relationship. And certainly when talking about India's position on Ukraine, many have pointed to, you know, this buyer-seller relationship and, and the fact that India gets so much of its frontline defense hardware from Russia. And I'm very happy to talk about that in more detail if you want. But the things we see, like the embrace of Russian military clients and the engagement with its allies and countries whose foreign policies are more closely aligned with Russia, suggest this relationship is, is much bigger and much broader than simply a, a, a buyer-seller. Right? India wants Russia to play a role in bringing about a multipolar Asia, if not a multipolar world. And that's, of course, a very different view than, than you have at present in, say, Western Europe or, um, or the United States. So consequently, I think our findings suggest that much of concern that you see over India's commitment to U.S. goals and, by extension, um, alignment with the U.S.-led international order will continue to be a source of frustration for, for people in Washington, and I think it's not likely to completely disappear. So, on that note, I think I will uh, stop speaking and uh, invite some conversation, discussion, questions. Thanks very much, Paul. When we were first talking about uh, doing this event, I said you CCW, one of the things we try and do every year are sort of uh, CCW strategy and statecrafts. So we try and get uh, and discuss some great powers every year. We haven't discussed India for a while, so it's a real pleasure for us to do this today. Um, and the second aspect of this, which was so um, enriching, really, was just that I think we've all got this sense that personal diplomacy matters, but we struggle to actually get from there to actually put yeah. it into actual research. Yeah. Uh, while you were talking, I looked up. Um, uh, a quote that I remember from Biden, um, which was that all foreign policy is the logical extension of personal relationships, hmm. which seems to sum us up quite nicely. Um, and on, on that note, just to say thank you so much for coming up to talk to us today and giving us this uh, very interesting research. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you.